if you can't sell, don't bother. It would be my advice. You must have selling skills. You've got to sell effectively yourself to your customer. You've got to sell yourself to your work colleagues. You've got to sell the idea that you've got, which is you effectively, to them to take it forward. Hello and welcome to the Leader Insight series, the platform designed to uncover the secrets to both career and business success and gain real insight from inspirational figures across the food and drink industry. I'm your host, Jonathan O'Hagan, and my special guest today is Roger Saul. Now, if you're not familiar with Roger Saul, he was the founder of the iconic UK fashion brand Mulberry. And in more recent times, he's transitioned into the world of food, founding Sharpen Park, the home of British Spelt. So this was a fascinating conversation with someone who can only be described as a bit of a legend from the world of fashion. This episode is slightly longer than most, for which I make no apologies whatsoever. Roger is a natural storyteller and straight away he takes us on an incredible journey from the early origins of Mulberry, the growth, the adversity, the highs and also the setbacks along the way. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear how as an early 20-something back in the 70s, he pushed through his fears, developed great resilience, but all the while consistently innovated and ultimately learnt the power of creating a true brand. It genuinely is an incredible story. We also talk about his new venture, Sharpen Park, which again, in its own right, has an incredible story, but importantly, has a bright future ahead, which will shortly see the launch of a new category-changing spelt drink. So stay tuned and enjoy, and as always, drop me a review if you find this episode helpful. Please do check out my new mentoring charity, which we launched earlier in 2022, called The Mentors Club, and you can find out more info on that in the upcoming episode. Enjoy. Roger, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Um, Now, you've got a fascinating background, Roger. You founded the iconic British fashion label Mulberry, which ultimately you exited in around 2003. And now you're an organic farmer in Somerset. So, um, and that's with Sharpen Park. So quite the transition. Uh, For people not familiar with your story, share with us a little bit about your journey from fashion into food. Well, I started back in fashion, really as a teenager. So I came out of school, headed for London for Business Studies College, had got a scholarship under Charrington Gardner Lockett to study solid fuel and joined them as an under-manager in Surbiton at the age of whatever it would be. And I thought, no, I can't actually do that. So I went to a man called John Michael, who was the Carnaby Street guru and a friend of mine had been working in one of his shops. I said, could I be your business management trainee? And he said, okay. So I made the coffee. I cleaned out the stationery cupboard. And then gradually he let me do more and more jobs and I started buying accessories for his shop, Guys and Dolls, on Oxford Street. And I was paying ridiculous money for belts bought off the streets by hippies and, and we would buy them, sell them for three times the price. And I thought, this is crazy. I could do better than this. So that early day of sort of, could I do something with something that I found was really what started me off. So I went to my father and said, look, Dad, could you tell me where to buy leather? And he said, go down to Bermondsey Road. And I bought some snakeskins and made my first snakeskin chokers. And that was really what set me on on the way. Girlfriend at the time helped me stitch them. We put little butterflies on the front, hand cut out. And that was the time of the miniskirt with Mary Quant. 
and our chokers became the sort of V choker you had to have in, in Bieber and other shops. So I had designed, I had made, I had traded, I'd gone out and sold something. So I'd put myself on the line to go and talk to people. And I was so shy in those days. You know, the thought of going to see somebody and sell yourself, if you like, your wares was probably one of the hardest things to do, but probably the biggest lesson in my life that you can have the best idea in the world, but unless you put yourself in the situation of selling it to somebody and seeing their reaction and seeing that process, I think the most vital lesson that I probably ever would take away from that. Anyway, long story short, that was successful. Went to my parents, said, look, could you help me become a new brand and start this whole thing off? And they said, well, why don't we make your mother a sleeping partner? She was very capable. So we set out as unlikely partners and formed Mulberry with £500, my 21st birthday present. And off we went. And belts were the handbag of the day. So I headed through the early 70s, designing, making belts, learning how to make them. And literally, I would make those first products and design them by the buckles. I started heading out to France and Italy and buying. And when I was out there, I was just so excited by the standard of boutiques and craftsmanship in those countries. It was way beyond Britain. Britain was very exciting and very op art and fashion was exciting, but the craftsmanship in France and Italy was staggering in comparison. So I would not only buy my buckles, my leather, I would actually go and sell to the boutiques with my schoolboy French. And I came back once with an order from a huge department store called Au Printemps. And I'd actually driven to Paris, got the ferry over, had what was called an ATA carnet, which was a huge multi-page document, which you had to fill in with every sample on it. And I arrived at Dunkirk in my little Fiat 124. And they said, have you anything to declare? No, no, nothing to declare. I have a carnet. Uh-huh. You have a carnet? Eh bien, where is it? <laughs> And I said, well, it's here. And I said, well, you have to declare it. Oh, I thought I just had to have it. <laughs> so, you know, those sort of fundamental problems of life at the beginning. And I got put in jail overnight. Um, and that was the beginning of my French first visit. That was okay. And off I went to, to Paris. And, and I sold my first belt to this lady in Au Printemps store. And she was 60 of a day. And face was po-faced didn't say a thing. I got my little belts out of the suitcase and presented them one by one. And she said, eh bien, ça fait combien? Uh, how much is that? And I said, uh, and I got the currency wrong. Instead of saying five pounds, I said 50p or something like that. It wasn't quite that bad. But anyway, we ended up getting an order for a thousand belts, which was yes, but I'd sold them for cost. I then also sold a La Bagagerie, which was the best um, store in Paris. And, you know, so I was in and I'd started to get into the top shops, not only in Paris and Milan and London. So by mid 70s, we had become the accessory designer in or one of the great ones in, in, in Britain. But I was also because of my traveling, I was meeting other designers and I got introduced to Kenzo in Paris. And he said, well, Roger, would you make accessories for me? And so the answer was yes. And I made his collection and I made it for Christian Ojar and um, lots of Italians and, and then Ralph Lauren. So I ended up being the accessory designer for all of these great brands. What that meant was I would see their portfolio. I'd understand the shape, 
Was it on the waist? Was it on the hip? What was going on? What colors were they using? And whether it was oversized or very sharp silhouettes. And I have all of this spectrum and I'd be able to go back and then know what my next collection would want to be. Because I could say, okay, well, I'd love that about Christian Ojean, that about Kenzo. And so that inspiration was just amazing. And color then was very hard to predict and very difficult to know. But I always got it right. So everybody who, who might be buying the clothing for the collections, I would show in Paris at Pret-a-Porter show. And I'd have the colors perfectly. So it was a great entree into that wider world. We then moved into handbags. I then did an English hunting, shooting, fishing collection in about 75, 76. And that was all based around sporting pursuits. That then became known as Le Style Anglais. And that was a huge success around the world. And I designed my first jacket, which was a, a blouson. And that sportswear look then hadn't been around. And I took an old army shirt, war department for the use of, cut the tails off these massive shirts, put a zip down through the middle, put a leather collar on it, and that jacket became the ratewear item in the world that year. And I always remember doing a show in America and the buyer came on the stand and said, Roger, I've been trying to copy that jacket all season. I cannot make it for the same money. Basically, I was buying the shirts for 50p or a pound, whatever it might have been, adding all the bits, selling it for 9.95. It sold for 19.99 or whatever. And she couldn't make it through a factory for half, you know, it cost her twice as much to make. So, And I was in competition with the Nigerian army buying the shirts because the War Department was selling them by the thousand. So that was the beginning of Mulberry really becoming a great success. And it wasn't until 79.80, the first world recession that I'd experienced, where the pound dollar shot apart and we were exporting 80% to the States, the pound dollar changed by 30 to 50% overnight with recession. The Americans stopped buying in Europe completely. We desperately tried to get round it by working out how to ship into America, free delivering with UPS um, into direct the customer and offering them a, a landed dollar price. And that sort of half got round it, but it didn't really because the price differential was so massive that we had gone from being, let's say, £50 a product to £80 a product. And we'd moved right into the stratosphere price-wise. So that's the first time I really felt uh, external affairs were way beyond us. But the biggest lesson I learned through that was I had to create something that was more than the next or last collection. I had to create a, a brand. So that was then creating Mulberry. And from Mulberry, then, we went back to the roots of what had been best about us, that English hunting, shooting, fishing collection. The stands we would produce in Paris would have been a look. We'd use wooden gym bars, director's chairs, pine coffee tables, cut off the legs and made a very cool look with white canvas. And so we took all of the core of that and turned them into corners in Harrods, Harvey Nichols, Bloomingdale's, and then opened our first shop in Place de Victoire in Paris. And suddenly we were off again. So we went from, I think, a million and a quarter turnover in 79, had just won the Queen's Award for export, down to 700,000 in a year. We had to make people redundant. We had to regroup. We then headed out to open these shops and corners. But we had established a look now. So we'd come through extreme adversity, just about survived. We were cash flow tight but we were profitable again. And we headed through the 80s, but realized there was no way we could open shops around the world because the capital cost was gigantic. But fortunately for us, 
our best boutique customers in, in Stockholm came and said, look, Roger, we've seen the shop in Paris. Could we open one like that? Could we do that? So we had designed the shop in Paris. So we designed for them, sold them the fixtures, sold them the stock for a shop, which was equivalent of 10 shops worth of normal boutique sales. And off they went. They didn't. It didn't move for nine months. And we thought, oh, God, this is going to be a disaster. And suddenly it took off. And when it took off, in somewhere like Scandinavia, it takes off on a scale. So literally, the wife would buy the handbag. Her daughter would be given the handbag. The housekeeper would buy the small bag. And it just swept through. And they didn't seem to mind that all of them had one. They had to have one. And we started opening franchise shops around the world, into Japan, into Hong Kong. And so that's really what took Mulberry off again. So we shot through the 80s, got to the 90s, Second World Recession hit us. And I remember sitting, um, Arthur, and I could see at the end of the 80s that we were going so fast that I was likely to trip over. Cash, I just couldn't fund the growth of the business, which again, another big lesson which I hadn't really come across before was that we were growing by 18, 90% per annum, which meant we had to cash flow that growth in raw material purchase and so on. So I, I went, I thought, okay, well, I've got to get some advice in here. Um, my accountants were okay, but they weren't, you know, they hadn't got that vision. So I went to Arthur Anderson, the biggest accountants locally in Bristol, said, look, I'd like to talk to you about things. And I knew if I didn't talk to them, my bankers would be on my back. So they invited me for a dinner and I was between two of their partners. On the one side was the new business director. On the other side was the liquidation director. And I didn't know that when I sat down. But on talking, you realize the way they were talking about things, I was clearly being sized up. And no doubt my bank was behind it. You've got to decide, guys, whether you're going to foreclose on him or you're going to support him. And fortunately for me, the one on my right-hand side became my financial director. And he bought 5% of the shares and he put in a couple hundred thousand. And if you like getting that external advice, I'd always throughout our time, I could never afford to bring in professionals full time, but I'd always try and go out and seek that best advice, be it on leather or on whatever it might be from externals and balance that advice. It probably meant I still was going to make the same decision, but I'd, I'd hone in my decisions. I'd get input that just helped me land successfully. So through the 90s, hit the second half of 1990, which was the Gulf War, which hit us all by surprise. And we had been thinking, well, how are we going to get through the next step? And this time we'd seen the recession coming. The Gulf War was sadly a bit like Ukraine and, and Russia. It was hovering. Stuff was going to happen. And so we'd batten the business down and tighten all the overheads down before we went in. And we went out to get support finance from VCs. So we went to Charterhouse, Climewater and Phoenix. They put a consortium together, bought 25% of the company, put the capital in and off we shot again in the 90s. We launched Mulberry Home, which was fashion was a bit of a crossroads. Journalists were wearing punk hairdos. It, it had all gone fairly badly wrong. Nobody quite knew which way they were going. But Mulberry Home just seemed, everybody had always tried to buy the fixtures off our stands in Paris or Milan or wherever you were. And so we thought, actually, do you know, maybe if we did Mulberry Home now is the right time. And so we did that and we we just made a, 
a larger than life collection based around English style. And I remember the first show we were at in London, I just stood off the stand and watched the ladies come on and, oh, that's just what I expected Mulberry to do. And they were wearing their Mulberry handbags. So the leap from one world of product to another was almost seamless. So that transition might have been said to be mad, but actually it was the fashionable area. Everybody was cocooning. Everybody was staying at home. People weren't going out to restaurants. So that jump, it was bold. And the man who I needed to go with it was that financial director who was who come in from Arthur Anderson. And he was really against it. So I made him managing director of that division. So he had to make it work. But back on the financial side, we'd sold 25% of the company to these VCs and their internal rate of return was 30%. So these guys are looking for big return, but it was rolled up. And again, being a bit naive, we didn't really quite understand what IRR 30% meant. What it meant was we were working for the banks effectively. We were working for them. So after five years, we'd be making great profits and they were on the bottom line, but we owed all this interest that we were building up. So come 95, we could see we were in crisis because we would have to pay back at five years all of this massive interest that had been created. So we went on the stock market and we sold multiple times all the shares available. The VCs were extremely happy because they made all their money back overnight. One thing I forgot to do, not forgot, didn't think I needed to do, was to put more shares into the market and bring cash into the business. So we didn't do that. We just took the VCs out. One year later, 96, Gordon Brown, under Blair, gives control of Sterling to the Bank of England. The pound soared high. And effectively, because we were selling local currency, it meant that our prices couldn't go up unless we raised them in local currency, which would have taken us back to the previous session out of the market. So we had to absorb that. And we all thought it would come back in six months. It generally did. Currencies did that. It didn't. It was Brexit 25 years later when the currencies returned to the same sort of level as they were briefly. So we had to move half of our manufacturing overseas. We went from making 1.8 million profit to a million loss in a year based on currency alone, which was a staggering thing. You know, and we depleted another year, half a million, then we bought it back into profit. By then, our bankers said to us, right, guys, you need to bring in external capital or we will put pressure on you. So we went out and sought external capital. I bought a lady called Christina Ong, a famous Singaporean billionaire. And it seemed to be the right decision. And the city loved it. So the deal was they bought 40% of the company for about $7 million. We put together a deal where she would invest $15 million into US and we'd do a joint venture out there. So my aim had been to get America sorted, which we'd struggled with since we'd come out in the 70s. On the one side and on the other side, have the Far East market really open up. So everybody thought I'd done a fantastic deal. What I hadn't anticipated was, I sort of thought, well, that size of deal, whatever happens ahead, I'm going to come out with good money, even if actually during this process, I'm now an exit. The harsh reality was within a month of her coming in, we had lunch with her and she said, I'd like you to step back to president and cease to have a, an executive role in the business, Roger. Bit of a shock, <laughs> to say the least. And she had two board members, I think. And so 
it was almost like a sort of drip, drip attack. And they just kept putting pressure on us. We took the decision, which was wrong. Um, we'd negotiated some really tough deals in Japan over the years and thought the best way to handle it was to listen, accept what they wanted to do, and in every way not try and confront. Just listen. And if it wasn't going to damage the business and we could do it, why not just do it? If there was something we were completely against, yes, stand up for that, but don't set up a war. Try and be conciliatory and really try and work with them. So we did that for two years, but we could see actually this wasn't like working with the Japanese. This was the Chinese. And actually, give an inch, that's shown as weakness, and they'll take a mile. So we'd actually given away probably too much, not controls, but in, in situations. So perhaps spent too much money on the Bond Street shop. They wanted to spend a million. We'd have spent 200,000. So it was that sort of insidious approach to it. And they had a boardroom director whose name I shan't mention, but his name in the city was Dr. Death. So he was put on the board to sow seeds of doubt, get in there and destabilize the board. And we'd cope with him reasonably well. And then finally, they called for an, uh, an auditor's report, as they could do as a large shareholder, looking for what we, that our stocks were incorrectly valued. We knew they weren't. We knew they were correct. But that just that whole process cost us today's equivalent of 100,000 and a huge amount of management time. So we went through that process. We survived that, pushed them off, and I thought we'd won the battle. Three months later, we were hit by a request by them. We were in Paris with a family for my son's 18th. And they had used that weekend to put a story into the Sunday Telegraph, full-page article, business section, saying uh, we're calling for the resignation of Roger as CEO and chairman of, of Mulberry. Um, and because I had I had about 47%, I think, or 45% of the shares, she had 40. Remember Godfrey Davis, the financial director, he had by now 2 or 3%. He had enough to add to hers to mean that I couldn't get over 50%, which I had to have as a um, to bat this off because I had a Dane who had 7% or something. I flew in to see him and I said, look, Roger, I'm sorry, I'm not voting either way. I'm here for the money. I've taken a, an interest that I know I can work. So effectively, I was, out came that article in the Sunday Telegraph. I had a whole load of repost articles ready for the Monday in the Times and other newspapers, but that was it. I was out within days. So that was a really, really tough process to go through. And we then went through the next year. I still had 45% or whatever it was but such a big block. And they've effectively set out to drain the company to show me that unless I withdrew and voted with them, they would do a rights issue. They knew I had no money, so they knew they would back me out. And I just resisted, resisted, resisted. And then after about nine months of this fight, I got various other big guys to come in and support me. And, and they kept saying, look, Roger, we, we can't, you know, we can't get control. She's got too big a chunk. So we totally believe in you, but we can't do anything. So they kept falling away. And then finally, Sharpen Park came up for sale around, for the first time for 100 years, around the house that we had owned for 30 years. We got married and moved in 20 years. And then suddenly it was there. And I had this choice. What should I do? Did I carry on fighting and putting my family and all of us at risk completely financially? Or did I actually just go, do you know, I'm going to go out and sell my shares, 
two institutes at a fraction of what they're worth. But if I sell them to the institutes on the basis, guys, if you buy my shares, I guarantee you she is going to invest in the company and take it forward. She hasn't done that 15 million yet she's committed to. She hasn't done any of those things. She's just really flattened the company out. She will do it. So all of them made a massive amount of money. I sold my shares. I bought the farm and out it came. So that was the end of my Mulberry career. But an exciting new one. Well, listen, Roger, there's so much to unpack there. I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing that story because I, I can only imagine the emotion that you feel when you take people on that journey. You know, what, what's that spanning almost 30 years? This has been your life's work, really. So thank you for sharing that. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Now, before I go to my next question, I wanted to give a shout out to our sponsor, Obvious Candidate. Obvious Candidate was founded by Sam Waterfall, aka London's Global Career Coach. And I'm delighted to collaborate with Sam as he has a truly unique approach to helping you get the job you really want. Having begun his own career in brand management at Procter & Gamble, Sam understands marketing. And he's the only career coach I ever recommend. Why? Well, simply because he gets results. As the founder of Obvious Candidate, Sam has 18 years experience in helping people to position themselves as the number one Obvious Candidate, head and shoulders above the competition. He successfully worked with people who've gone on to land jobs with the International Olympic Committee, the World Economic Forum, Nike, Amazon, Virgin, Red Bull Racing, Rolls-Royce to name just a few. Essentially, if your job search is taking too long or you're struggling to get the job offers you really want, then Sam is your man. Now, Sam and I have put together an exclusive offer for you, the listeners, where he's prepared to offer you for free a video introduction to his amazing precision networking method. And he'll also give you, again, for free, a copy of his Dream 30 networking tracker. This helps you to organize, structure and guide your approach to effective networking. I've seen it, it's superb, and it is a proven strategy that gets results. To reach out to Sam and take advantage, simply go to www.obviouscandidate.com forward slash leader. Do it today. You won't regret it. Your next big job is waiting for you. Before we get on to Sharpen Part, there's a few questions I'd love to ask of you, if that's okay. I mean, going right back to those early days, Roger, I'm fascinated how how this person in the 1970s, how did you have the confidence to do what you were doing back then? You know, where where did that come from? Like you said, you're in a world which I can only imagine how exciting it would have been back then in the 70s, but to travel to France, to do these things that most normal people, Roger, wouldn't be doing. (laughs) Where does that come from? Where did that entrepreneurial kind of spirit come from? I have no idea. Um, Obviously, it's within me. And I just remember being very frightened, you know, very excited, but very frightened of doing things like that and putting myself into countries where I didn't really speak the language and so on. I suppose if I look back at my father and having watched him, he just worked so hard. He was one of those that would be in on Saturday mornings in the factory making it happen. So he was a doer on a scale and he'd take people with him. So I would watch him, his workforce of 500 or whatever, just loved him you know so he he could take people over the horizon and win battles and i suppose that's what i grew up with i suppose the second thing is they sent me off to boarding school at 11 that was pretty tough 
So to be on your own as an 11-year-old for the first time, having been in a close family, that hardened me up a lot. And I think, you know, that gave me that sort of resilience to to cope with things. My mother was an incredibly strong individual, very capable. So I think her resilience probably stuck. I mean, your DNA comes together how, I don't know. But um, It's fascinating though, Roger, because you mentioned about you were frightened and, you know, the questions running through my mind is, are you driven by the fear of failure or motivated around rewards? Yeah. How are you motivated, Roger? I don't think fear of failure. I mean, yeah, always that sits there, doesn't it, in the background. But generally that doesn't sit in the foreground for me. It's about creating opportunity and knowing when that opportunity is going to come. We'll talk more about it in Sharpen Park. But, you know, you think in the fashion world, we were creating a new collection every season. That's twice a year. You were creating new products. So sometimes we went into the Mulberry Planner agenda, the Filofax. That came out of nowhere. That became a multi-million pound business in its own right, going from belts to handbags, going into clothing, into glasses, whatever it might have been, watches. And then what sort of keeps you in the limelight? You can't be at the front of the pack all the time in fashion. If you are, you will definitely be dead one or two seasons time because somebody else has to be there and looks change. So keeping in the vanguard in fashion isn't always about having the best dress, frock, coat, whatever it might be, or the best look. It may be that you have created your customer base and your customer base is constantly looking to be looked after and safe on the one side and excited on the other and getting that balance of, oh, what are they doing that's new? That's where we went into Mulberry Home. Or when the planner agenda, Filofax is hit, paper was turning into Zions and Palm Fives. We did a Palm Five cover and tied up with Zion. And suddenly all the city guys had to have the Mulberry one. So it was coming up with the idea that just kept you flicking to the front without necessarily being the absolute leader. Then early 2000s, I knew in my heart that the 70s had always been the most exciting fashion period for both music and fashion. It changed so much, so much happened in that period that fashion kept going back to it. And you'd know that every five years or every seven years, something about the 70s would be picked up by young designers coming in and looking for inspiration. So for us, I knew that come 1990, it would go into the future, thinking about 2000, so silvers and Gucci silver and Prada and all those guys, metallic finishes, etc. When we got to 2000, where would it go? It would go backwards. And it did. And so we were poised in 2000 with English, classic, 70s, design, excitement. We put all those together. And I fished a bag out of my Mulberry Museum, and it was a design I'd done about 75, and it was a great big grip handbag. And we managed to get it on the catwalk with a young designer, Luella Bartlett, who was designing for us at the time. And I'd shown her this bag, and she had Stuart Vivas, who was working with who became another great designer. And I showed her this bag, and I said, this is one of my favorites. She said, yeah, I love it. Now, couldn't we take that double belt, Roger, that you did at the same time? Couldn't we wrap that round the bag and do it, this double-sized version? And she was doing a fashion show in New York in her, under her own label, and Gisela Bunchen, who was the Brazilian model at the time, 
um, she carried it off the end of the catwalk. And we had a photographer, Chris Moore, who was the evening standard catwalk photographer. He took a picture. He got in the evening standard. Vogue picked up on it. And we had created the it bag. Now, that bag was the wrong size. It was the wrong everything, but it was the bag and it caught the moment. And from there, Mulberry had a succession of it bags over the next five years that just stole the world. So, you know, it's sometimes not necessarily about the collection you do. It's just a moment or something you've done or created in marketing terms or PR terms that flicks you into the limelight. Yeah. Well, the two words I've written down, Roger, listen to your story. I mean, there's a number of things I've written down, but adversity and innovation. Obviously, as a mindset, you're an innovator. And yes, timing has a part to play, but it sounds like you face an awful lot of adversity. And that I think that for anyone listening will be fascinated by your awareness of potential failure, but you kept innovating and over a sustained period of time, you've managed risk, but you've hit, I don't know if jackpot's the right word, but you've hit the right moments at the right time. And that's been born out of that innovating mindset. I think you said an interesting word there. You said at the right time. Timing is absolutely everything. And I think all the experience I've had through my life has been about knowing when that moment is, and again, we'll come on to that with Sharp and Park in a moment. But just knowing when you've got a wave that's going with you, you, you can have the best ideas. But if the time's wrong, I can't think of the number of times we did great things in Mulberry where actually nobody noticed. <laughs> they weren't in the mood to notice. We were too early. A great one was Kate Winslet. We did a Mulberry magazine called Mulberry Life. And we had picked up Kate Winslet's coming with Titanic. It hadn't come out. And so we... Kate Winslet became the Mulberry girl. We went, we were racing at Goodwood. We had her there at the pre-press launch and we did all our photography. Nobody had a clue who she was. We had two lanky models there who everybody was photographing instead of Kate. And we featured her massively knowing that Titanic was coming out. It came out late. <laughs> it came out after that had all come out. Then Gucci picked her up as a Gucci girl next year timing was wrong. So, you know, everything was right, but we hadn't quite got it right. So timing is everything. Tempted to say something about that idea sunk, Roger, but I'll, I'll refrain. Um, <laughs> listen, let's move the conversation on to Sharp and Park because it's a fascinating story in its own right. So we're up to around about 2003, 2004 here, aren't we? So give us an introduction to Sharp and Park, you know, the history, the background, if you will. So Sharp and Park is probably been here, I would think, for thousands and thousands of years. So we bought a semi-detached manor house back in 77, got married, carried my wife over the threshold, Monty. And she was daunted by it. She'd lived in Maidenhead with her parents. And here she was in the middle of the countryside with about to have young children. And so we restored the house as it was. And I was flat out at Mulberry at the time. And we then bought the middle bit of the house, then we bought the whole house from the farmer. Farmer moved out and we bought 30 acres. So over the years, we probably made about five or six purchases. And finally, the farm came up for sale. And he literally came around on, on Saturday morning. Monty was actually doing the Camino. And this is part of the Mulberry crisis. She was trying to find, you know, what, what does life really mean? So she went off and walked the Camino with a friend. And I was here on my own. He came around with this full prospectus and said, uh, I'm putting it, putting it up for sale on, on Monday. I went, whoa, I hadn't got any money at this moment. It was all trying to fight the Mulberry battle. 
And so somehow or another, I borrowed or theoretically borrowed money from different camps and, and went out and made an offer, which I knew he probably couldn't refuse because I just had to have it. Didn't have the money, but managed to then sell the shares and get the money by the time it came around to, to purchase it. That was pretty hairy in itself. But now we have this 300-acre farm, which we'd seen as a rundown dairy farm. And we'd studied and, and learned. I love history and research. So I'd researched Sharpen Park and had worked out when we lived in half it, what the other half of the house looked like inside and you know, worked out what would have been the history. And the history was that Sharpen Park was first mentioned in about 750 and King Edwig gave to the Thane, young landlord, Ethelwold, gave him Sharpen. Sharpen is scarp, hamlet on a scarp, so it's a slight promontory of land. And to have given him that at that time, the King of Wessex, meant it must have been of some value and for it to be recorded. So it's rich agricultural land. It sits facing Glastonbury. The abbots of Glastonbury then fought with landowners backs and forwards to own it, ended up owning it. And the last abbot but one built what was described as a magnificent palace here at Sharpham. Um, and so each abbot would have built their own palace. And the abbots of Glastonbury were the richer than the king. They owned hundreds of thousands of acres around the country. Last abbot was taken from here to be hung, drawn and quartered in 1539 by King Henry VIII on Glastonbury Tor opposite us. So dastardly end. But then it was fought over for 100 years. Um, Sir Edward Dyer, the Duke of Somerset, got it. He then fought with another family, the Thin family that owned Longleat, who said, even if it takes my last groat son on his deathbed, you will get Sharp and Park back for me. He did. So he got it back and then the Gould family owned it. Then Henry Fielding, the author, was born here. Um, and Thomas Hawkins, an irascible geologist, um, he found... Plesiosaurus here and sold it to V&A for £10,000 when it was completely put together by, completely mocked up by an Italian plasterer, so only half the bits were real. So, so you have this wonderful sort of history of different people moving through. And then it became a farm, just a farm, in about 1900. And then we got it around that 2000 period. So what on earth was I going to do with it? Well, my sister had cancer and she was struggling and she came down just after we bought it and sat on the kitchen sofa and said, uh, I said, she said, what are you going to do with it, all this land? You know, it's bad enough trying to make 30 acres work. 300. I said, well, I'm going to grow wheat because my grandfather had a farm over in Suffolk and we'd loved going over his children and being on the combine harvester or whatever. She said, well, no, why don't you grow spelt? Never heard of spelt, went on the internet, found one page and it just looked fascinating. Hildegard von Bingen, saint from the Middle Ages in Germany, said, good for the mind, good for the body, good for the soul. Hello, marketing term or what? Uh, the Roman army had used it for their marching bread. So I just thought, this has got to have legs. Why isn't anybody growing it? And so I contacted various people and found nobody was growing it in the UK at all. It had been grown, had been grown massively hundreds of years before, thousands of years before. Uh, and subsequently we found that... Um, as a local lake village, Glastonbury Lake Village, it was found that's 3,000 years old that would have sat on the sort of brackish waters and lakes around. And they had leaven bread with spelt grains in it. So it had actually been grown 
And this is the nearest high land. So almost certainly spelt being grown here 3,000 years ago. So gathering all these bits together and thinking, with a farm, if I'm to create a new brand and create a food, I must create something that's going to have value added and something that is going to magically come together. So having created a, a mulberry brand backwards and using not just fashion, but English classic and all those things and built a brand, um, I sort of knew how to do that. What I hadn't said is we had Charlton House, which was a hotel that I opened back in 96 as part of Mulberry Home to bring everybody in so that they could actually buy the dream. Got a Michelin star in our first year. So I'd been creating a food lifestyle within the, the hotel side for the previous seven or eight years. So I knew actually I could take the food from here to the hotel. I could do farm to fork. And so that idea and food was becoming the new fashion. And literally, as I went back into the PR market thinking, how do I create and sell this new brand I've created around Sharp and Park and Spelt? Everybody was going to the new restaurants and chefs were the new cool thing to be, was to be a chef. So Sharp and Park, it was to be. That was the name. Great name, I thought. Great history. Um, I was going to create a mixed economy. I was going to make it organic because organics felt the right way to go. And that's what I've been thinking with our Michelin style. We were getting a bit fed up of just producing the perfect thing. I wanted to know where the food came from. Now I could produce the food. So I got white park cattle, Hebridean sheep, red deer, brought them all back into the park, thought I could do mixed economy, found in the first few years that, that was not quite an economic disaster, but very hard to make money out of, understood why rare breeds were rare breeds planted 300 walnut trees because walnuts had been grown here. So thought walnuts could be the future, but spelt was going to be the one that really was the key for the future. Could I multiply it? Started finding out that spelt had high protein, great slow release energy, Roman army copying the Germans and looking at how they were so resilient and how did they march the extra mile. And organic, the micronutrients in the soil, gathering all these up through the soil into the grain. Lots of things started to become clear to me as we started organic farming. And then we looked at things like we, we did the first two years, half the farm straight into organic, half the farm kept conventional in, in conversion. And as we did that, we learned huge lessons, like we grew great big fields of wheat with our farmer, and then on the other side of the hedge, spelt. And I watched the spelt grow up with the nettles and the weeds and the flowers growing in it. I watched the conventional spelt poured the chemicals on through the farmer with growth inhibitor, so it grew 15 inches high, weed killer, pesticide. And Monty, my wife, said to the farmer, is that really okay? And he said, oh, yeah, DEFRA got rid of all the nasties years ago. But did they? And the answer was 10 years later, they've now got rid of most of those. And who did we sell that to? He said, look, let me sell it to you for a local, to a local chicken farmer, which he did. And then we ABC time. Okay, so we've sold that spelt, sorry, that wheat to the local chicken farmer who eats chickens. We do. So that all those chemicals have gone into that grain, into that bird, and that's coming back in our direction. So I think starting to learn through practical experience that chemicals and and you, you looked at so many people with wheat intolerances and those sort of intolerances, you, you could understand that actually, if we could do this organically, that was going to be the future. So those early lessons were vital for us in understanding what to do. And then we started to understand, okay, well, 
what can we make with spelt? And the first bread loaves I found, Terence Stamp, the actor, made a, a square loaf you could buy when we first set out in London. And you could throw it against a wall and make a hole. And I was thinking, oh, God, can I make good food with it? It tasted delicious. And yes, you could. If you just processed the bread slightly differently, you could make anything. So bread, biscuits, pasta, pizza, cereals, muesli, granola, anything you can do with wheat, we could do better with spelt. So we started creating product. I then built a flour mill, a stone flour mill, just as it would have been done in Roman times, on the site here on the farm. So we were now farming, milling, and then as demand grew, I realized I'd have to find other farmers to grow for us. So now we have about 20 farmers around the country who all grow spelt for us under contract. We'll do it a year ahead. We'll base price on wheat and give them an uplift on that so they know they're going to be in hand. They know we're going to buy it from them a year later. So effectively, we've now got a consortium of people helping us bring it from all the way from the land up through. Brilliant. So it's almost like a cooperative model then, Roger, would you say, with through these 20 different farmers? I suppose what's happening now and what will need to happen in farming is if you look at the current grant system, it's being taken out by the government and it's being replaced with a new system, none of which we fully understand yet. But already every year, 20% of our previous grants that came through the EU system have gone. Every year over the next five years, another 20% will go. The government has indicated that rewilding is a really important part in the environment. And I think probably before the Russian-Ukraine war, everybody understood that that's the right thing to do. We've got to get our uh, carbon sequestration right, and we've really got to look at that whole carbon footprint for the world. I think, unfortunately, though, they haven't looked hard enough yet, and will need to, as to the food we grow. And to me, that's been obvious for a time. So somehow, how do you balance the food that we desperately need and the environment? So, I mean, if you take Russia, Russia and Ukraine together export 29% of the entire exports of wheat around the world. Russia, going back about 20 years, was a net importer of wheat. So they as a nation, even though they've lost half their territories from the USSR, they are now exporting a massive amount. What are we doing in Britain? How are we supporting our farmers to make sure that they produce whether it's wheat or fruit or vegetables, how are we really encouraging them to look after the land, not just from an environmental process, but also from a food process? Because we've all seen with fossil fuel, everything is going to go up massively price-wise. There's going to be massive food inflation. Surely, right now, we have to turn on a penny, support our farmers, and really help them uplift and look at, as we have done, how do you add value through the process? Rather than let it go through third parties or interims, farmers have got to be helped to arrive at the market. Now, in some ways, we've got a time when with direct delivery to customers, I mean, we've massively grown our online sales from about 30,000 to a quarter of a million in the last two years, obviously aided by the dreadful COVID situation where people have realized they've got to shop direct because they can't get out to get it. But that's now going to be a way of life. So if the government can just help the farm producers or the fruit or fruit or vegetable producers, help them with capital grants or whatever it is, but with support to grow and project, that's got to be the way forward because we cannot carry on importing on the scale we are. 
I was just thinking, you mentioned something earlier on, or maybe I did, or we both did, about timing. And I think we live in a time where transparency is really important. You know, consumers care more now than I think ever around where their product comes from, how it's produced, um, you know, the way companies do business is more important than ever. Um, so whether you call it this circular economy or sustainable business or what have you, it, it really matters. So I think the timing of this is um, with everything going on in different parts of the world. Again, it comes back to that timing thing. I think you're in a, a really pivotal, important moment, aren't you, where consumers really care about this stuff. You sort of brought it up to speed with the business now. What does that feature look like then, Roger? What's happening? What's around the corner? Well, about two and a half years ago, I was trying to do a new children's cereal, which still hasn't come out, but will come out in the next few months. And that's called Healthy Spelties. And we'd found a way of extruding spelt into shapes for children. So we've got crescents and moons. And we were trying to, we could, we found a way to introduce chocolate into it, just a tiny bit of chocolate to give it a nice taste. But we didn't want to add sugar. So I found a way of hydrolyzing our spelt flour and getting the natural sugar content in flour to come into that syrup. And then started to coat the cereal and thought, yes, and my grandchildren were loving it. So I thought, yes, I'm onto something here. Suddenly I thought, well, hang on, why couldn't I then convert that into a drink? And that was the beginning of doing that. And we spent the last two and a half years doing that. It actually only took us nine months to get that right. But then COVID arrived and I could see food service closed and the coffee industry shut down and the buyers all at home for the supermarkets and really just concentrating on surviving and getting the food produce in they needed. So we just pushed back and pushed back. And actually, that gave us the time to really work closely with baristas and just perfect the taste. So we looked at all of our competition out there, and I won't mention any names quite deliberately. We knew who did the best froth on milk. We knew who had the best taste as a drink. We knew who looked good and made lots of fancy noises, but actually their product wasn't as good underneath it. So we just kept checking and looking and checking and looking and then decided to go organic with it. So we could have gone conventional and hit a good price point, but we decided, actually, do you know, I'm pretty sure that organic is going to be the key issue ahead. If you need extra calcium, you can get that elsewhere. So organic must be the route. So we decided to do it organically. So we grow it, we mill it, and then we produce it within a 15-mile radius, which is unheard of. We then got a Great Taste two-star award, put it through the award system last autumn and got that Great Taste two-star, which is the first drink ever to get that. And we were going to launch in January. And then COVID swept through again, so we couldn't get it produced. So we finally are producing it and putting it out. And it comes out the first week in April, going into Ocado. We're hoping to gorilla into London Coffee Week. Um, we've worked with some super coffee guys called Extract and a guy called Marcel Ottoy, who's right in the coffee. They've really helped us understand that new industry. So a bit like bouncing from Mulberry Fashion into Mulberry Home, we sort of bounced out of organic food into drink. So really, really exciting. And literally tomorrow we do the first production run. And I've been, I'm literally working out all the things I'm going to send to the press. I'm going to send out the samples to them. And everything is just hyper, hyper warp 
from today onwards. Must be such an exciting time. I mean, in terms of the business, coming back to the business itself, Roger, what are you looking to do next? Are you looking for investment, for example? Because it's a relatively lean organisation, but with hopefully a very big future. So what are you looking to do from a business context over the next three to five years? Yeah. Well, so while I was doing the drink over the last two years, I was thinking this could be massive. We were looking at the scale of you know, the size of the plant-based drink industry worldwide is gigantic. And it's probably one of the biggest areas of growth. And I think watching Generation Z and the millennials coming through, it's natural for them. And if you go to the Far East, well, they never drink, drank milk anyway. So if you like, plant-based will be a way of life ahead. If we look at the whole balance between vegetarians, plant-based meat eaters, I'm sure meat will become a luxury will need to be. I'm sure we're going to have to use more of our land, produce plants, wheat, cereal, feed, not for animals, but for humans. Otherwise, it isn't going to be enough to go around. So I'm sure we're in exactly the right position. So how do we then really drive that forward? Well, if we're to get to that scale, a bit like I looked at investment into Mulberry, that was because I knew we'd reached a size and we were a world player. But if we wanted to be a global player, we had to have the marketing money to spend on getting into countries and then sustaining that growth. So that's exactly why I've started to look investment in. And literally, as we go out now, I've sort of poised to go out to get that investment until we've got the drinks into the market, because I felt we should have a visible product that shows where that growth is coming from. I have the five-year business plan. I've had it for many, many months, um, down to the last detail. But it will be, I think, over the next month, literally we'll go out and I've started talking to people quietly, but we'll start going live on that literally in April. Brilliant. Well, um, exciting times. And if you're listening, you heard it here first. So um, <laughs> get in touch with Roger if you like what you're hearing. Um, well, I wish you all the best with that, Roger. It sounds like a really exciting phase. And hopefully, again, coming back to that timing thing just at the right time for you as well. Um, you mentioned there, Ricardo, I think you've got a relationship with Waitrose as well, Roger. Can we expect to see these products in Waitrose anytime soon? Yes, I hope so. As you know, we've got a cross-section of products in there, so we will pitch to them probably in early April, but we're doing our PR campaign first, so out we go to market, and then very much we'll be talking to them about that future, to, to Waitrose, Sainsbury's and others. And we launch with Plant Organic, second half of April in London. So it's so a really exciting times. And, um, but, but getting that timing of each of those bits right is vital. And having that slightly frustrated patience <laughs> over the last year. But again, just come back to me. No, you, you just got to wait. You just got to be, you know, wait for that moment. Now, before I go to my next question, I wanted to remind you about the brand new charitable initiative we launched in 2022 called the Mentors Club. The purpose of the Mentors Club is to raise money for charity whilst facilitating the introduction to inspirational industry leaders for quick advice and mentorship. Think executive coaching meets speed dating. It's a 100% for charity initiative with three wonderful beneficiaries, including the Magic Breakfast, Macmillan and RMHC. We've got a panel of 10 superb mentors you can get access to, including Andrew Selly, the CEO of Bid Food, Sue Garfit, the CEO of Alpro, and Julia Darville, the UK MD of Puratos, plus many, many more. Think of it this way. If you're working through a challenge at work, 
or you're at a career crossroads and you'd be keen to get inspirational advice from industry proven leaders, then this is for you. Likewise, if you're already operating at C-suite level and you're looking for a great networking opportunity to connect with other like-minded leaders, then this is for you. To find out more and support the initiative and check out our amazing panel of mentors, then simply go to leaderexecutive.com forward slash the mentors club. Thank you for your support. I'd love just to talk to you about skills, attributes that you feel have been important throughout your career, both in fashion and in food. So I don't know how much you've analysed or looked back, but yeah, what skills, attributes do you think have contributed to um, your success over the years? I think multitasking is vital. As a creator and entrepreneur, you've got to see the opportunity, but at the same time, you've got to be aware of all the facets that that brings how are you going to take that design product? How are you going to manufacture it? How are you going to cost it? How are you going to bring it to market? How are you going to know timing-wise that have you got your press samples to go to the press the three to six months before your production is going to get there? So just continually thinking on a multitude of levels and just having that sixth sense, you know, oh, I've got to remember to do that. And that then is without, you, you can have all of those things yourself and know it's got to happen, but you cannot do that on your own. So having a team around you that know how they can help you get there, enjoying the journey, knowing that sometimes they won't know where the journey is going to take them, but trusting in you and you as a team to get there. So the team is vital, however small the team or however big the team is. The bigger the team is, the more complicated it comes because you've got a multi-level. So at the moment, I'm really enjoying it because we're a very tight team and we're literally flicking between. But again, it's not just the team within. Those suppliers, those creative agencies, all the people that make from your cardboard box to whatever it is, if they, are, if they know that you're going to go fast and they've, they've got to react with you and they're excited by that. So I think taking a team on a journey with excitement, knowing that you'll be like a submarine sometimes, you could be underwater for vast periods of time and your periscope's up, but you can't come up. And you know that might be the financial angle. It might be the time it takes to market. It could be many things. So I think those are vital. I think then equally moving incredibly fast, but that incredible speed side of it is only possible if you've got the basic ingredients. So other people will look at what I'm doing and think, wow, that's dangerous. It isn't. It might have elements of danger, but if you've got all the posts in position, you should be fine. And if you've done it enough times before, you can do it. I'd always remember my racing days. I'd always driven around circuits around Europe and thought I knew how to do it well. And then we did a series where we had a professional driver beside us in each kind. It was an hour race across circuits around Europe. And my professional driver said, look, Roger, we're going to walk around. It was Donington as a circuit. I don't know if it's three miles or something like that. I was thinking, God, it's a hot day. I'm going to walk around the circuit <laughs> in my race suit. This is going to be heavy. And we walked around that circuit and I'd never done something like this before. And just, you now, Roger, in your car, single-seater, powerful car, pre-war 30s car that if you twisted or turned it and got thrown out, you need to be thrown out, A, because you don't want really to run over. But he said, as we go, now, I want you to just clip this red and white strip here, but you mustn't go over it because you'll flick the car. 
I sort of knew all of these things, but when you're walking it, it's a long walk around this one strip, and you say, we clip it just here. Now, as we come up this steep hill here, you're going to go under a, a bridge, Dunlop Tire Bridge or whatever it is. I want you to go flat out. I want you to aim at the top of the bridge. You know, and you've got to hold your nerve to keep your foot down because you'll take off at the top. But you'll land fine. Don't worry about it. So I took something like, I don't know how many seconds off my lap time, won the race easily because he had taken me out of the front of the pack forward another step. That sort of, now what had I done? I just studied carefully the detail to be able to perform. So you've constantly got to be looking at the detail in everything you're doing, checking the detail, checking those little bits that make the whole. It's no good coming out with a wonderful product when you've forgotten to get the packaging right. You know, you've just got to keep thinking of all those bits and pieces and gathering it together and taking it apart, getting a team to be with you on it. So I would say those are probably the most important aspects. And I, I told you earlier, you know, there are times when we've got, in Mulberry days, where we've got some of the bits perfectly right you know, we just didn't have something in the timing. We were too early, too late, or we didn't get the right people to come and see it. Or So it's got to be complete. Hmm. I guess hearing you, Roger, it's about mitigating that risk through preparation, isn't it? And not guaranteeing that it won't go wrong, because inevitably if you're taking risk and if there's a big reward, chances are every now and again something will go wrong. But through good preparation, you're going to mitigate that risk and get it right more times than wrong. No fascinating insight. What's your motivation, Roger? What's your why to coin cynic? I looked that up because I hadn't a clue what it was, um, but now I do know. <laughs> and <laughs> sad to say, but there never really has been a why for me. For me, it's just thoroughly enjoying being integrated into our environment, people. I love working with people, stupid thing to say in a way. And there's just the challenge of creating something and seeing it happen, be it a fashion show or a drink or planting a new crop and seeing it turn into product two years later and imagining that process. I mean, we're playing with some new crops at the minute, which I want to have the ingredients into our products in, in two years' time. We sowed naked oats for the first time a year and a half ago, and that's now in our naked oat and spelt drink, and that'll be the first to market. So, you know, it's it's coming up with things and just knowing that the excitement and, and the hackneyed word journey of how you get, you know, enjoy the journey on the way through. It's not just about getting to the end. I think that's really important. I think that's motivation alone, isn't it, Roger? Again, it comes back to this ideas innovation thing. I sense that's what makes you get up out of bed in the morning. Roger, what's next? You know, what, what next new opportunity can I spot and create and, and carve out? In terms of leadership, Roger, we often talk about leadership on this podcast. For you, what does good leadership look like? Again, if we think about traits, behaviours, etc. Yeah, talk us through your thoughts around good leadership in today's world. I think it's, in my case, it's demonstrating to people, I will do the most menial job as well as the most important job. Getting everybody to try and think, getting that detail right is vital. I mean, I'm probably the biggest weeder we have in the garden team, or the, you know, there are only two of us in the garden team, the gardener and me. <laughs> I probably pull up more weeds than he does. But him seeing me doing the weeding as well as designing a bit of the border or creating a space in the farm, I'll go and 
hacksaw, I went hacksaw, I'll use a, a pole saw to take limbs off trees and so on to keep that. So it's actually them knowing I'm with them. I'll do whatever I ask them to do, but I shouldn't be doing it all the time. Otherwise, we won't go anywhere. But I'm there for them. They're with them. Brilliant. And And people listening to this who aspire to be an entrepreneur, a business leader, what skills, attributes would you encourage them to develop, Roger, thinking especially about the world we live in today? You know, as we've talked previously, the world's changed an awful lot in a relatively short period of time. So thinking about today and the coming years, what would you encourage people to develop in terms of behaviour skills if they want to lead and be an entrepreneur such as yourself? I think there's a fine balance between confidence and arrogance. So I think confidence to some people can appear arrogant. I think knowing that's probably important from to the outside world within you. Not everybody can be an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is somebody who imagines a possibility and makes it happen and then hopefully succeeds in making money out of it for themselves or their community or their family. And I think if you are to be an entrepreneur, you know, you, I've, I've had people come up to me and say, okay, well, I've had this idea. And I said, great. Well, what, what, where do you see this idea going? Well, it, you know, it's a great pumpkin and this pumpkin's going to, but they haven't really thought what the pumpkin's going to do necessarily. So they, th they think they've got a great idea of a, a product, but they haven't thought how they're going to bring it to market. So without question, if you have an idea, you have to an idea of where it is in the market, where it sits with its competition, what are its unique selling points or its unique factors that are going to encourage a customer. You've then got to either have the skills to bring it to the market or know how you're going to do that. And of course, in today's world of social media and, and so on, where magazines and newspapers are good old-fashioned PR, it doesn't work the same way. You've got to be, presumably, pretty clever on your social media side and on your website, etc. So I think bringing somebody beside you, bringing people around you who can help give you that information because you can't possibly have it all. So consult, consult, consult. Gather that information. Make sure it keeps honing your own direction. Yes, I was right there. Whoa, I didn't quite get that right. I need to reconsider that position. Or I really don't know this part of the subject. How can I learn about it? How can I get that knowledge on how to come to market in that arena? Yeah, having that learning mindset, if I'm hearing you correctly. And you mentioned there about people again. That's been a common thread I've heard from you, Roger, surrounding yourself by the right people who you can learn from and, and go on that journey with. Now, one thing I said right at the start, if you can't sell, don't bother. It would be my advice. You must have selling skills. You've got to sell effectively yourself to your customer. You've got to sell yourself to your work colleagues. You've got to sell the idea that you've got, which is you effectively, to them to take it forward. You've then got to find those customers and you've got to go and sell those customers that idea. Now, I've now got a great salesperson in my team who I know can get their foot in the door. If I can't do it all, I've got them to do it for me. But it's vital and I keep looking for people like that who can help us on that journey to convert on the scale because it's no good having the idea if you can't get out and make it happen. So you've got to go back to that time I said when I was shy, I was frightened, but I was prepared to put myself in danger, at risk, 
you've got to be prepared to do that. You've got to take that step. But all of us know, oh, I don't want to make that phone call today. I'll do it tomorrow um, to get that appointment or to put yourself in front of somebody. So I would say that's probably the biggest attribute that you need to have as an entrepreneur. Brilliant. Well, you've, you've rather preempted one of my final questions, <laughs> Roger, but we'll come back to that in a minute. I've got a couple of quick questions I want to ask you before I let you go, if I may. Um, call them quick fire questions, if you will, Roger, but um, very briefly, a career high and a career low. What stands out for you? Oh, career high, so many. Um, it's going to be that successful drink launch is the career yeah. high. Many gone past, but that's the one. They're actually probably winning the Porto Grand Prix. <laughs> Brilliant. In my alpha. That, that was amazing. Um, but career low, it has to be my demise at Mulberry. That was a shocking family time and it affected everybody and uh, brutal. Yeah. A real kind of one chapter closing, but within a couple of years, you know, I can feel the passion and energy you've got for Sharpen Park. Roger, and that's what strikes me getting to know you a little bit you know there's there's these chapters in your life really i don't know if you see it this way but um this huge chapter that was mulberry and now this this ever-growing chapter with sharpen park and i suppose listen you can't have the light without the shade as they say um but i can imagine what a tough tough time it would have been oh i'm going to give you give you one more which was um probably actually the high was Freddie, my young son, youngest son, he and I ran Kilvercourt Designer Out of Village for 10 years and made a huge success out of it, out of nothing. Had 100,000 people, 11 million turnover, top brands in the world. Um, we closed it and sold it in six months ago, um, having gone through COVID and realized that we really felt that retail wasn't where we wanted to be in the future. We could still be there doing that today, but he helped me make that decision. He was the CEO and I was the chairman, executive chairman. And 2019, just before COVID, we won the best retail shopping centre in the UK award for a tiny baby against some monsters. We won it for what we were doing in regeneration and everything. And, it, and that was the proudest moment. We were sitting at the back of this uh, award ceremony on the table at the back and just thinking, well, we came, we did what we did, we, we had to come. And then they called our names out and we went, wow. So to do that with my son was just staggering. Yeah, I was going to say it must be all the more special for doing it with your son. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, book recommendation, Roger? Have you got anything insightful or impactful to recommend? No, no, that's the one thing I don't really get the time to do. I do read a million books on holiday, but basically, <laughs> no. I love your honesty. <laughs> I love your honesty. Brilliant. Listen, you've kind of already answered this, Roger, but finally, knowing what you know now, what would you tell your younger self in terms of career advice? Uh, just do what you did, what you're going to do, <laughs> <laughs> what you did. Yeah. Oh, and remember to do start Tai Chi a little bit earlier in life than you did. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, listen, Roger, thank you so much for sharing a bit about your journey. It's a fascinating insight. I really look forward to watching Sharpen Park, especially over the coming months. I know it's a really exciting time for you. So keep in touch. Thank you for spending your time with me. And we will speak again very, very soon. Jonathan, it's been a pleasure. It's good to talk to you. Thank you, Roger. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you found this episode valuable. 
Don't forget to subscribe so you get notified about all future episodes. I'm working really hard to keep bringing you inspirational leaders from the food and drink industry that we can all learn from. And if you're feeling generous, please drop us a review. It really helps spread the podcast far and wide. And finally, as you've probably noticed, my passion is to help businesses thrive through the power of people. Like the very best leaders of today, I understand how creating purpose-led cultures with high levels of trust and employee engagement leads to successful financial performance. Back in 2011, I founded Leader Executive to help companies outperform the market by focusing on the human element of their business, their people. As a well-respected talent solutions partner, we collaborate with food and drink businesses across our four business pillars, design, hire, develop, inspire. To find out more about how we can help you outperform your competition by focusing on the human element of your business, then reach out to me on john at leaderexecutivesearch.com. I'd be delighted to hear from you. Until next time on the Leader Insight Series podcast, take care.